Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. WineACCESS.com slash normal is how you're going to find my wine club. The wines are shipping now. Join before it's too late. Go to WineAccess.com and check out the Wine for Normal People Wine Access Club today. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. A couple quick things before we start. First of all, yes, again, for the second week in a row, I was sick when recording this, so my voice may sound a little weird. I am obviously much better now. Second of all, so happy to have Simone back. I know so many of you really enjoy her perspective. She's such a smart cookie, so it's great to have her back. I would love to give our patrons shout-outs now, and then we will get to the podcast. Onky W, Tracy S, Elizabeth K, Teresa G, Elizabeth C, Nicholas R, Michael B, Adam L, Christian S, Ha D, Tiffany R, Brian O, Zachary S, Carol Beth K, Devin M, John H, Valeria C, Richard M, Kristen J, Bruce S, Luke T, Rick L, and Frank G. Thank you, everybody, so much for being patrons. I am looking forward to, there'll be patron hangouts coming up. We want to do a Chardonnay taste-off. We're going to do some fun things, actually, with our European friends. So if you're a patron, stay tuned and check that out. And now we're going to get to this podcast. Super great information about what's going on in Australia. If you're in the U.S., let's just keep our fingers crossed that it makes it across the world to us. Here's the show. This is an incredible day for all of us because many of you have said, what happened to Simone Madden Gray, your trusty Australia and New Zealand correspondent? And I have said, I have been trying to get her, but she's so famous now. It's just impossible for me to secure her time. I am so glad that I have finally reconnected with Simone and she has come back to give us an update on a super interesting topic. And the other thing is, Simone, that since we last talked, I have more than one Australian listener. I might have like 10. (laughs) And so like people can really feel connected. I even have one Kiwi listener too. Hi, Alison Knight. Excellent work. (laughs) (laughs) What's crazy is that people in Australia and New Zealand can take classes because it's Sunday morning for them, but they'll still power through. Saturday night, our time, Sunday morning, your time. But anyway, it is so exciting to have you back. Thank you for coming back. Now, give us the story of what you've been doing over the last couple of years and what you're concentrating on now, which is really, really cool. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, I should clarify that I have been in Melbourne for the last wee while, and if anyone has watched the news, they'll know that I've been staying in Melbourne during the pandemic and so forth, because we had some very strict lockdown restrictions down here. So that really did keep me close to home, and it meant that I thought a lot about writing. So I started doing a lot of freelance writing, focusing mainly on new technology in the wine industry, sustainability and climate change. And those are the things that I am actually genuinely very interested and excited about. And fortunately, I found some editors who happy for me to pursue those topics and publish them and give me a little bit of airtime. There is no show that I do with a producer where we don't discuss those topics. So They're totally top of mind. And if we look at wine as farming, which is really what it is, 
then Mm -hmm. we wind up in the same place, which is that, yes, there's stuff that goes on in the cellar. It's an important process, but it starts in the vineyard. And if you don't get it right there and we don't fix some of the issues there, what is there? Nothing. That's right. And I think that the wine industry is doing a really good job of thinking outside the box in terms of problem solving. I think they're responding well also to uh, consumer feedback that people want to know how the wine has been made, where it's come from, how the fruit has been grown, how the land has been cared for. And I think the wine industry is getting better and better and better at responding to that with greater transparency. There's still some way to go, but I think the wine industry is um, facing that head on and doing some good work in that area. The thing I would love to see, boxes on the shelves instead of glass bottles. That might be a better solution or something else besides single serve glass, which is kind of our big downfall in the wine industry now. True. I think that it's a joint effort from people who drink wine and who walk into a retail store and select wine. It's a joint effort from the consumer of the wine and the producer of the wine because it's still ultimately driven by what sells. And I think the champagne cork is a really good example of how hard it is to move away to a different packaging because the pop of the champagne cork is often what signals the occasion and is connected with that product. So to move away from that, it means that not only do producers have to move away from it, but consumers have to come with us. And I think that we're seeing some movement, particularly with wine in a can, that's starting to really grow. And the technology to support that and keep good quality wine in a can is also coming along with it. And I think that's exciting, but still there is a significant portion of the market that wants their wine in a glass bottle. Yeah, everyday wines need to shift a little bit. I absolutely agree. For wines that are not being aged for the longer term, I think there's a really strong case for putting it into either a box. I saw recently a paper bottle has been launched. Yes, Um, yes. There's really cool looking plastic bottles from recycled PET plastic that a company called Pakamama is working with producers around the world. And here in Australia, it's been launched into one of the local supermarkets and it's done really, really well here. So I think for things like picnic, and outdoor events and a single serve and those kinds of things. There is the the ship is starting to turn. Yes. But I think as an industry, we perhaps, if we want an alternative to glass, we're going to have to come up with something that allows the wine to age. And right, that particular challenge, I think, is still in early days. All right, let's move on to what we're talking about with Australian wine, which is so interesting. And one of our listeners, uh, Peter B., shout out to you, Peter, who's a great member of Patreon, talks about this a lot, the alternative varieties of Australia and what's going on with that. So let's talk about the alternative varieties and what you would consider alternative grape varieties in Australia. This plays right into what we're talking about in terms of climate and making changes that are important both economically and for the world. So give us a definition here. Oh, that's a tricky, tricky question and answer, actually, because uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote about this for an American publication. And as I started to work with the editors, 
what they defined as alternative was actually quite different to what I thought was alternative here in Australia. For example, in the US, Grenache was considered an alternative variety in the context of Australian wine. And that really surprised me, given that Australia is home to some of the oldest Grenache vines in the world. So I think if you were to ask an Australian wine drinker living in Australia what alternative varieties are, Grenache probably wouldn't be a variety that they would list. Right. It's more alternative varieties are those that are not considered to be mainstream varieties. So they tend to account for smaller plantings and they're not your typical Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, Riesling, etc. They're lesser known grape varieties. And I hesitate to use the term lesser known because I think, and particularly in the last five or so years in Australia, what is lesser known has also changed. So perhaps five or six years ago, Fiano might have been lesser known, but now I think it's quite a familiar a great variety for many drinkers here in Australia. One of my favorite white grapes. I love Fiano. It's nice to see <laughs> Me too. That. Me yes, too. <laughs> yes. But I, I've never seen it out of Australia. I've only seen it out of Avellino in southern Italy. There are some wonderful producers here. And I think what's exciting about Australia is that those alternative varieties have been around for long enough such that the producers of those grape varieties have traveled, they have grown in their confidence in winemaking in general, but they've also also grown in their confidence in terms of the varieties that they're working with. So you get a real breadth of style from those who are looking to pay homage to the traditional style and those who are looking to forge their own uniquely Australian version of the great variety that they're working with. Still staying true to the varietal characteristics, but presenting something that has uh, an Australian signature to it. So I think that's actually very, very exciting. Perhaps because the plantings are so small, the export volumes are equally small. So they're not seen so easily in export markets, but in certain markets, they're very much available. I think of markets like Japan, South Korea, the UK, some European markets as well. Sadly, when it comes to the US, I think the paperwork in terms of getting wine into the US and then moving it or getting it into different states for these smaller producers can be such a barrier that they're not able to enter that market. They don't see that it is going to be something that they can manage long term. But I do think that what we're about to discuss is a big opportunity marketing wise for Australia in the US, because we haven't seen anything new out of Australia for a long time. So if it turns out that some of these varieties can make it through, and there's some great importers. I mean, there's a couple I'm thinking of, especially in New York, New Jersey, there's some in California that are doing really interesting things and bringing in some of the top wines. It's just one of the challenges I see for Australia in the U.S. is that there's either very high-priced wines or very low-priced wines and nothing right in the sweet spot where people really are drinking, which is yes. U.S. 18 to $25 is probably where we're looking at. And there's just nothing there. But I wanted to ask you, so the history, you said that some of this stuff has been around for a while. Is this from immigration like a long time ago? You know, there's so many Italian immigrants and German when you say that there's a history and people have been working with these grapes for a while, why did they pick these? Well, I think you're right in that immigration has a big role to play. So a lot of the communities that came to Australia from Europe brought with them their 
food and beverage traditions, of which wine is one of them. And if you look into the history of alternative varieties in Australia, as far back as the 1860s, we see that Best's winery in the Grampians in Victoria, they were planting Dolcetto. So that's a long time ago yeah. for this country. And also, if you look at producers, and again, in Victoria, like the Brown Brothers, Brown Brothers is renowned for their work with alternative varieties. They're based in the King Valley, and they've since the 1960s, planted an incredible, diverse range of grape varieties. And they've spent a lot of time and effort working with them and promoting not only the varieties, but also producing quality examples of that. So really, it has been around for a while. And there are some alternative varieties that you just know are here in Australia and don't necessarily think of them as alternative. And I'm I'm thinking here of Viognier, which has been planted in Australia since the 1980s. Right. But again, commercial factors also come into play. So if you're looking at what the world wants to drink and where they're going to drink different grape varieties, over the years, there have been swings back to more traditional grape varieties as people ultimately are running a business and they need to pay their bills and so forth. So they're looking at what the market is requesting and they're planting accordingly as well. Every now and then you hear people say, oh, well, there's some Australian producers planting Tempranillo or there's some Australian mm-hmm. producers planting Southern Italian varieties. Maybe somebody has Norello Mascalese or something, you know, something like that or Nero. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Mediterranean grapes, Australia's big on Southern Rhone already. And it's Shiraz, it's Grenache, it's all of that. Mm-hmm. But the surprising ones are all of these grapes that are small and people are sort of getting to know from Italy and from Spain and from Portugal. When we say alternative, is that, am I on the right track there? Or Definitely. They account for a significant portion of the alternative varieties. And I think there's a couple of factors that driving that. Obviously, looking for grapes that are able to do well in the ever-changing climate here in Australia, but obviously it's getting hotter and it's getting drier. So unsurprisingly, people are perhaps looking to countries that have worked within those conditions for decades or centuries and looking at what those grape varieties are. But also I think the, particularly um, when I think of the heritage, the Italian community and actually the Greek community in Australia are very visible. They have a very strong influence. I mean, I live in Melbourne, which arguably has some of the best coffee in the world and it's thanks to the Italian community here. Lucky. Um, they, yeah, very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I can't complain. I get very sad every time I leave Melbourne and Aww. I get very, very picky about the coffee that I like oh, to drink. Oh, yes, I bet. <laughs> but those great varieties, I think because there's a tradition of drinking the wine from them and understanding how you would drink them and expectation for what they will taste like and the occasion that you would drink them with or the food that you would drink them with as well. So the language is still strong amongst the different generations here. The culture is still strong amongst the different generations here as well. You know, I'm constantly amazed by my Greek friends who have to go to Greek school. It's their grandparents or further back who came to Australia, but that sense that culture is really 
really important. I think that plays a really big role in these grape varieties because you've got a community that understands them as well. So not only are producers coming from that heritage, but you've also got a wine drinking community who is willing to engage with that and finds that really exciting. So I think that um, culture and heritage play a big role in it. But I think climate is a really big factor and also just a point of difference. And I think the uh, the alternative varieties here in Australia, they represent a really exciting part of the wine industry and something that's really unique. And right now people are interested in stories and how things are produced, why they're produced and who's making them. And I think alternative variety producers or those who make wine from those alternative varieties, they're quite a unique bunch of people and they've got something quite unique to offer. With technology and with travel, the price of travel going down, we've been places, we know more people. If we haven't been exposed to it, we sort of have some inkling. If you if you want to find out about another culture, you can do that very easily. It's the good side of the internet, not the bad side. Yes, and, yes. And also the fact that the world is a little smaller. I think that is driving people to say, well, yes, we still love Cabernet and we still love Chardonnay, but what else is there? Oh, well, I know somebody that went to such and such place, like maybe I'll try a wine from there. Or I think that there's some curiosity and I think that it makes people much more open because it's easier for us to imagine a scenario where, wow, I know that they grow grapes there. What kind of grapes do they grow there? I think that it's just a very different time for wine because people can be curious and then follow up on it. And they can say, okay, well, I haven't been to Portugal, but I know somebody who went there and they said the wine was really good. I'll try that. Why not? The other thing in terms of the the climate change, what's going on with the rain? We should uh, probably cover well, that too. It's feast or famine. Is that what's going on really? Uh, it, it does feel a little bit like that. And I mean, I know we're talking about Australia, but right now I can't help but think about home and the devastation of first the flooding and so forth in the North Island, but now they're in a state of emergency with the cyclone having hit the North Island also. So I'm in constant contact with friends in that area and it's like nothing they've ever seen before, particularly because I have a number of friends living in the Hawke's Bay region and the devastation there is extraordinary. So I know this is about Australia, but I think it's a really good example of its climate change is affecting this really unpredictable effect on climate. And in Australia, we see serious, serious floods. So the most recent floods here that we saw in Victoria, which is where I live, so that's probably the the one that I'm most closely affected by, at Tabilk Winery in the Nagambi region, some of the oldest vines that exist were underwater. And fortunately, I just saw someone posted on social media uh, yesterday, I think it was on Instagram, pictures of those old vines and they've come back and they're looking remarkably healthy, which is wonderful. But the pictures that Tabilk posted during the floods were heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, the vines were submerged and the Hunter Valley has had the same issue in New South Wales. All the communities that live along the Murray-Darling River have been terribly affected by that. And I was in South Australia at the end of last year on a course and there were some winemakers there. And although the rain had stopped, the river had not stopped flooding. So oh communities gosh. were constantly under threat of the river bursting its banks. And so we'll come on to talking about some of those different regions. But 
the Murray Darling is a source of irrigation as well. So vineyards are often planted along the river or close to the river so that they can access it. And then when you have these floods, this flood is like nothing that had been seen in, in recent times as right. well. We've just come out of a really bad bushfire season last year in Victoria as well and across the country. So winemakers and um, vineyard managers are really being put through the ringer. And I think that's why looking for varieties that can cope with some of this and not be so dependent on water as well. That's a really important thing, but also just bringing some innovation in terms of how the grapes are farmed is such that the vines are resilient. That seems to be, you know, of utmost importance because right now there's just everything's been thrown at them. Only 4% of, I pulled the statistic, that only 4% of Australia's wine producing vineyards are alternative varieties. But Tariga, Fiano, Vermentino are starting to really take hold. But do you think that it's a trend or do you think that it's a blip? What do you think? Do you think this is a growing thing or is it just a small? Absolutely. I definitely do not think it's a blip. I actually think that figure might have just ticked over to 5% or slightly higher than 5%. And I think if you look at the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show, that's about 21, 22 years old at the moment. Wow. And so when that started, it had fewer than 100 entries in the wine show. And then in 2018, I was the fellow. So I spent the week up during the wine show, visiting some vineyards, talking to producers, looking at how the wines were being judged, looking at all of the entries. And the year I was there, there were more than 800 different entries. Oh my gosh. And what the, yes. And so what the Alternative Varieties Wine Show does is that they have a strict criteria for what an alternative variety is. And if the interest in the wine and the production of the wine continues to increase, they will move those varieties out of the show because they're no longer considered alternative. And an example of this would be Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris and Prosecco. So those two varieties were in the alternative varieties wine show, but they are no longer considered alternative because they are planted to such an extent that they fall more into the mainstream category. So I think events like the Australian Alternative Varieties Wine Show has been pivotal in getting the quality of the wine up in supporting producers, also in getting the message out to those who buy and drink and enjoy wine. Because around that show are a lot of different events like lunches and tastings and dinners and so forth. So you can come up to Mildura during that week just as a member of the public and go along and taste some of these wines and get to interact with the producers and so forth. So I think those sorts of events have been very, very important for raising the profile, along with an impressive trajectory in terms of quality. That's exciting because I feel like in some ways it mirrors the Rhone Rangers in the U.S., if you know that group. Yes. They started out so small. It's still not major here, but people know them and they've managed to do a decent job of getting the idea that California can grow Rhone grapes. So I think that is really, really important that there's some place for these people to go every year and to show off what they do. I love the fact it's so Australian to stay on top of it and be like, you know what? You're out. 
you've made the mainstream yeah. you're out. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. very good about they're very, very good about making sure that things are efficient. And uh, yeah. can we touch on you mentioned Prosecco? Can we touch on the war going on between Italy and Australia? It is not pretty. Champagne has had some problems with the U.S. Also, port has problems with the U.S. because we won't drop that. Or we've grandfathered in certain people, although we've dropped most of it. But yes. you have Nero Davola and Prosecco. Italy, they pulled a fast one here, which is that Prosecco was the name of the grape. And then they decided, exactly. no, it's the name of the town. And now we're naming exactly. it with the old thing. And so now Australia is really stuck between a rock and a hard place. It does seem like Nero Davola, they've dropped the Davola because it's not from Avila. So it seems like Nero is... Um, Actually, I haven't really seen a lot of evidence of that. I think there are two really different issues here. Okay, tell One us. with the Prosecco is that they, they changed the grape name. That's a completely different issue. And I think... Prosecco has been made in Australia for a really long time. I go back to that really important Italian heritage in Australia, particularly in the wine community. And that style of wine has been around for a long time. And arguably, because I'm not taking sides here, but arguably you could say that the goalposts have been shifted by changing the grape variety and then renaming the, the region. And well, I think and they that did that it just to a... target Australia, frankly. It was all yes, the name, and think... the name, and nobody else was calling it that. They started to see the US making moves towards that, but it was all against Australia. The counterpoint to that is Australia doesn't use champagne anymore, right? They don't use Australian champagne anymore on their bottles, do they? No, but I think what we talk, but I, I don't see them as the same argument because the name, it was the, the grape variety. That's true, I think not that's the reason. The, that's yes. the nub, yeah, that's the yeah. nub of that particular area. And I think where the agreement currently is, is that Australia will continue to produce and name Prosecco in Australia, but they will not export it to ah. um most markets. In Australia, I can go and buy a bottle of Prosecco and it can easily be from Australia. But I would be very surprised if I could do the same thing in London, for example, because I think that was the agreement that Italy and Australia came to. That said, one of your listeners could easily correct me because this is an ongoing discussion. And I think oh, every time war. trade talks happen, yes, it continues. The Nero Davila discussion is slightly different, actually. There was a request from Italian winemakers to wine merchants in London to stop importing Nero Davila from Australia because it was, in their view, in contradiction to the geographical indication and the protection that came with it. As far as I know, that really didn't get off the ground. And I also wrote about this, but it was about four years ago, and I interviewed a number of different merchants in London. And the general response was they were a bit perplexed as to why the Italian producers were pursuing this. And they felt that the examples coming out of Australia were excellent examples, and they were oftentimes a nice way to introduce a customer to this particular grape variety and then take them on that journey and uh, encourage them to explore the heritage of that grape variety. So I also at the time in 2018 spoke to a number of different producers in Australia and no one had any plans to make any changes to uh, the way that they were making or labelling their wines. And to be honest, I'm not sure where that has landed. But again, I actually think the issue is rooted in this disagreement about Prosecco because that just hasn't been resolved. 
We'll take a step away from the podcast to thank our sponsors this week. We've already thanked our patrons on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash wine for normal people. If you want to join the community, get discounts on classes, get information that's not available anywhere else. Really great conversation and be part of a community with live events and online events where you really get to know people and feel like you're part of something. Also, wineformnormalpeople.com forward slash classes, another way to get together with a wine community and have a ton of fun. We have fantastic classes, very, very nerdy. You definitely get MCI spottings also, if that's of interest to you. They are live. There'll be a couple new ones posted, but they do sell out quick because we limit them so that I can make sure to answer every single question and interact with everybody. So wineformnormalpeople.com slash classes and wine access wine A-C-C-E-S-S dot com slash normal. You will get 10% off your first order if you have never ordered. And let me say once again, if you have not signed up for the Wine for Normal People Wine Access Wine Club, the shipments are already going out. Don't miss this opportunity. I've hand selected all the wines. The feedback I have gotten so far has been fantastic just like everything that you order from Wine Access, the wine club is going to have the story behind each wine, pairing suggestions, serving temperatures, things about the winery. The wines that I was able to select for the wine club are things that I have a personal connection with. If you do join the wine club, you get 10% off every purchase that you make. What's great is that the wines are often available for repurchase. So if you love the wines that are in the wine club shipment, for instance, you can go on Wine Access and find them and order those bottles that you think are really fantastic. Free shipping's included on the wine club and also included when you spend $150 or more. And they've got a buy and hold feature where you have up to 30 days to reach that $150 free shipping threshold. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to wineaccess.com slash normal. There's a page of wines that I love that I have picked out. If you want to just pick and choose from there, you can search their site, which has even more fantastic stuff, or you can go under the Wine Clubs tab and find the Wine for Normal People Wine Club. Check it out today. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal. The best place to shop for limited production wines from around the world, wineaccess.com slash normal. Now let's get back to the show. Every time Australia comes up and uses an alternative variety that's from Italy, there is a little bit of tension there. And it's a shame because, if anything, it's it's just in the same way uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, when it's made well, you talk about how wonderfully well it's been made in that country, but you cannot help but reference France. So, Although, it's... I don't know. I mean, I think there are people that drink Australian Cabernet, that drink Napa Cabernet, that have never had a French wine with Cabernet Sauvignon. In that way, those are really international varietals. But I don't know what's going to happen. The Prosecco thing is, you're right, it is so thorny because they moved the goalposts. I don't know. I'm siding with the Italians on d'Avola because it means of Avola. So I think that that's Mm -hmm. kind of misleading. But the Nero d'Avola, it's not, even in Italy, they don't necessarily produce the wine in that, around that town. I think that's the other sticking point when you start to drill down to where the wine is actually produced. I'm not 100% sure, but I know that there is a DOC that includes it in Mm. Sicily. Mm, That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think because of that, and because it is, the heritage is really in that southeastern portion of Sicily. But you're right, they do grow it in other places. It's sticky. I personally think they should just call it narrow and 
drop the Davila, but that's yeah. my that's my feeling about it. But I see the Prosecco argument is very thorny because I remember when that happened. It wasn't that long ago. And it was no, no. bonkers because then all of a sudden we were calling it the Glera grape instead of the Prosecco grape. And we always called it the Prosecco. It's very odd. So anyway, that's an interesting story. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> yes. Ongoing, developing story. China, Australia and China. This is new since we last spoke. Yes. I mean, the Chinese have pulled the rug out from Australia. There's basically no market because of the trade war. And although Penfolds is trying to get around it by making wine, there, there's all sorts of things. But there's also a glut in Australian wine. What about these offerings? Does this make this a better time for alternative varietals because maybe they can break through? Or does it make it a worse time because there's so many problems right now because of the China stuff that just went so ziggy-zaggy? It was just horrible. Oh, gosh, there's a lot in that question. So I think that trade relations move at a speed that is faster than planting a grapevine and getting it to market. So <laughs> I'm not sure. I, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure it w- would have necessarily such a direct impact on the plantings of alternative varieties in Australia. The situation with China has been not devastating, but it has had a significant impact on the industry here. That said, what has happened in recent years is a change in government and a change in approach to relations with China. And there has been a significant increase in diplomatic relations with China. And there are a lot of discussions about perhaps removing that tariff or adjusting it. So things seem to be thawing at the moment, but I'm not really up to date with all the minutia of the politics there. The other thing that happened while these tariffs uh, against Australian products in China were and currently are in place. For for people who aren't up on it, it's about 150% tariff. I think it's at least that. It's And they adjusted it like for Penfolds in particular, they penalized them and it was over 180% at some point. But it's it's also steel and it's seafood, right? There's a whole bunch of things within the category that yes. China just decided yeah. because Australia was siding with the Western sphere in coming after China for human rights violations, that China would punish Australia. And wine was one of those categories. I personally think that China always had the strategy of pulling in and making their own wine eventually. But this really sped things up. And it's been very, very difficult for producers, especially some of the small ones. It's much easier to ship to China from Australia than it is to the US or the UK. For a number of different reasons, though, as well, because, uh, again, just going back to the paperwork of getting your wine into the US. But I think what happened during that time across the industries, uh, this multiple industries that were affected by this, was the need then to look to different markets. And there has been some success in terms of finding alternative markets for Australian products. With respect to wine, uh, India has been a market that Australia has looked to for exporting wine. And just recently, there has been a free trade agreement with respect to wine. And 
part of that agreement was lowering tariffs on premium wine into India over a number of years. And I think India is an exciting market. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's a, a large population, a significant portion of the world's population, but the middle class increasing in their dispensable income and interest in wine is growing. But the caveat is that India currently is not a, a huge wine drinking market. It accounts for only around maybe 1% or 2% of alcoholic beverages that are drunk. So wine doesn't hold a huge portion of that market. That said, when you have such a large population... It doesn't take much. (laughs) Exactly. And it will probably provide uh, an important alternative for some of the producers who are no longer trading with China. India has always been an untapped market because they have some Western influence after being a colony of the UK for so long. Most people who are educated speak English. It's a good market, but still very difficult when the rug got pulled out. So I guess what I was thinking was that not just the new plantings, but would people now think, okay, well, we got to deal with what's on the table. We got to find these markets. Or would they think, okay, well, you know what? Maybe now is a good time to open new markets or revisit old markets that might be a little tired and see if we can ramp up with these alternative varietals, but it sounds like it's just all a work in progress. I want to talk about the areas that you think are suited to certain varieties because they're not the ones that I think I would have thought of. So, And that's why when we were talking about this, I think I chose those regions for that reason. There are alternative varieties planted all across Australia, and I'm certainly not an expert, and a lot of my experience draws on where I'm actually located. And where you're located, I would have said that's where most of the alternative varietals are. If you were going to ask me, I would say there's probably two places where people are planting interesting things. I would never have said the other places that you're going to say. I would say one, Victoria, because there's a lot of cool climate spots and mountains, and it's a very Mm -hmm. interesting area, and a lot of the smaller GIs in Victoria are completely untapped, I think. They're really not Mm -hmm, well known mm -hmm. enough. And the other place I would have said is probably Margaret River, just because they always seem to be experimenting. But I have no idea whether that's true. But certainly not the places you've said. So go ahead. (laughs) But also, I mean, South Australia has a rich heritage of alternative varieties. And then also, if you look at somewhere like New South Wales, Hunter Valley, there are some wonderful alternative varieties planted up there. I think of Albarino from Briar Ridge, an excellent example that sells out every time it's released. Wow. So, yeah. Good climate I think for it. A, a little tropical and humid. Alberino can t- handle that without rotting. Yeah. Yeah. All across Australia. So I just want to get that caveat out yes, there that we're limited by time and we're also limited by my knowledge. But the first region that I suggested was the, the Riverland. And I guess the Riverland and the Murray-Darling, the other region I suggested, the first two, because most people associate them with junky uh, wine. Volume, <laughs> cheap, yeah, cheap wine. Yeah. And And together, they do account for the majority of wine that is produced in Australia. It's like 70% together, right? Isn't it? It's like some crazy amount. So like that's Yellowtail Land. It's a really, really 
high volume area. So the Riverland itself accounts for around 31% of the total crush in Australia. It's a very dry area, windblown sands and loamy clay soils. But I think what's interesting is that there are over 85 different grape varieties planted in that particular GI. And there's been a lot of work done by the industry, some industry bodies, like the Riverland Vine Improvement Committee does a lot of work around investigating suitable varieties and clones for the particular terroir of that GI. And so we see more varieties coming up through there. And a couple of really important producers in the region are making great progress in terms of quality wine and getting it out into the market, promoting it and really showing that it is capable of producing some excellent wine. Is it very hot there? Very warm, very warm, very dry. And flat, right? Yes. And so when you're thinking about grape varieties, arguably you'd have to have a very special site to be able to get perhaps a good quality Pinot Noir from such a region. This would be prime for some of those Portuguese varietals or some of the Italian varietals. Absolutely. Absolutely. And are they looking into dry farming here or are they irrigating still? How are they doing this? You said before that part of the drive for the alternative varietals or a big part of it is climate change. Yeah. Dry farming would be one of the ways. So I did a podcast with Langmel in Barossa. Mm-hmm. They have the oldest mm-hmm. vines in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. We did a video tour on Patreon where Lee, our shout out to Lee from Langmel, he's a patron and he also, he gives mm-hmm. a video tour of these old vines. They're so resilient and they dry farm mm-hmm. them most of the time, like unless they really get in trouble. But so are people looking mm-hmm. to do that again with these alternative varietals? Find places where you can dry farm or are they looking for yep. irrigation? So I think? think there's a couple of different things. There will be irrigation being used, but I think as technology improves, you've got a smarter use of water. There's also different pruning methods and things like that that can build the resilience of your vine as it ages. And then obviously you've got the dry farming you were speaking about. But in the Murray-Darling region, when I was at Chalmers Vineyard, in Mildura, back in 2018 when I was there, they had just put in some bush vines that they'd planted in the Marco Real pattern, which is used in Spain for those bush vines that allow the vines to stretch as far as possible underneath the soil in search of water. So those vines are about two and a half meters in all directions. So I think there's a lot of research into what varieties will grow well in dry, arid conditions, and then also how to make the most out of what little water you have access to. I say this, of course, in the face of just these terrible floods. That's so, the thing. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it does seem a little counterintuitive to be talking about dry farming in this context, but I think that that is part of the discussion around what variety to choose, is to look at the environment that you're growing the grape in, look at the lessons that have been learned through history in terms of where they're better suited, and then look at how that variety might grow in that particular region. Keeping in mind that it does actually take a number of years to get new cuttings or new varieties into Australia, because they will need to go through that quarantine. Right period, then they need to go through a trial growth period, and then they can be planted for commercial release. 
I remember Jim Barry in the Clear Valley was the first Assertico producer in Australia. And it took him a number of years, or it took that producer a number of years to get the vine material into Australia before it was able to be planted and then actually a commercial release come from it. So it's also a time-consuming process if you're working with a variety that is not in Australia yet. And that's what I was going to ask is how many of these are already, it sounds like a bunch of them are already there. Yes, yes. They're, they're, because you've had a number of producers who throughout the decades have looked ahead and also just out of personal interest have right. wanted to plant these varieties. So Chalmers in Mildura, in 2000, they started producing wine from vines that they were uh, propagating in a nursery, but they've been a nursery since the 80s. And so they're actually responsible for a really really significant portion of vine stock that has been provided to producers of alternative varieties. So they were in the propagation of alternative varieties business for a number of years before they started producing wine from it. And they're also the founding family or one of the founding families of the alternative variety wine show. That's very cool. What about Victoria? So it seems like these bulk wine regions are trying to find some footing in the fine wine area through the alternative varieties. And it does sound like some of And these, they're doing yeah, yeah, they're doing it. They're doing really well doing with it. And I think looking at different markets as well. So if you look at something like Ricketera Farms, Ashley, the founder, has just come back from a North American trip through Canada and the US, but also has been up into Japan and South Korea. So I think what alternative varieties offer is quite an exciting food pairing range that you can pair with a lot of different foods. And so when you're looking at a broad range of cuisines, and particularly if I think about Japanese cuisine, where texture and so forth really plays a big part in a meal, I think a lot of those alternative varieties have a role to play in matching with those foods. So those markets are also really important. And we're seeing some great success up there with Australian alternative variety wines. That's very, very cool. Mm. All right, talk about your home place where I would (laughs) think there would be a lot of alternative varieties. Yeah, so there are quite a few in Victoria, but I chose Beechworth because I was actually just up in Beechworth a couple of weeks ago. Which is a GI like no one's probably ever heard of. (laughs) You know, even Australians (laughs) might not have heard of it. It's small. It's a... It is small, but it's a really important GI, I think, in Victoria. And it's a really interesting GI because it's up in the hills. So you've got that kind of continental alpine-influenced environment. And that really does provide for quite a range of alternative varieties. In Beechworth, you'll see things like Fiano, Roussam, Viognier, Neradavla, Sangiovese, Tempranillo. But they'll sit alongside Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Shiraz. So you've got a real variety there. And interestingly, you still see producers from this region making wines from alternative varieties that have been grown in the Riverland region. And that's true of producers around Australia. So as the Riverland region's alternative varieties reputation begins to grow, we start to see some producers who are augmenting their portfolio with fruit from that region. And an example is Bellwether wine. So Sue Bellwether is based in Kunawara, but she actually makes an award-winning rosé, which uses fruit from the Riverland. And it's a mixture of alternative varieties. And I mentioned that because in Beechworth, there's also Fighting Gully wines, which Mark Walpole is the winemaker there. And he is 
quite an exceptional winemaker when it comes to alternative varieties in that he's worked with a lot of Italian varieties for decades, both in Italy, where he has current relationships with winemakers there and makes wine there, and in Beechworth. And he worked with Brown Brothers, which you'll remember I mentioned. Yes, yep. So he's spent a long time working with them as well. And Sangiovese is a great variety that he knows a lot about, but he works with Alianico. His Riverland rosé is actually a Mavedra. So forgive my pronunciation for all the Francophiles out oh, there. Oh, no, 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 we already... <laughs> <laughs> After I was in France, that, so I took a trip to France and I realized that even if I tried to be respectful, no one was going to understand me. So everybody knows <laughs> I don't accept any emails anymore about pronunciation. Nope, nope, nope. Those go right in the bin. Well, hopefully you, people you knew pronounce it however you want, girl. You just do you do it however you want. However it looks, you just do it. That's how we do over here. We are normal people. Excellent. So Beechworth, it's a wonderful historic town for a start. And so when you visit Beechworth, whether you're a tourist from abroad or a tourist within Australia, it's an old gold mining town. So there are a oh, lot cool. of buildings left from that era. And it, you know when you drive into Beechworth that it's a really historic, it's quite a special little place and it's well worth a visit. And right in the one of the main streets as you drive into Beechworth is a somewhat new cellar door called El Dorado Road. And they spend a lot of time with some classical varieties, but with some really exciting alternative varieties. So for me at the moment, my house white in the summer is a Fiano from El Dorado Road. They grow it. El Dorado is actually a tiny little village, I guess, just outside of Beechworth. And some of their fruit comes from that area as well. They make a delicious I'll call it narrow, just to stay neutral. Um, but they make a delicious Nero, which my husband is a great homemade pizza maker. And Ooh. that Nero is what we drink when we have that pizza. It's absolutely fantastic. And then just when I was back, they hadn't released it, but they let me have a wee taste of a new white wine that they will be releasing if it's not already on the market now called Wallflower. And that's a Viognier Marsan blend. Yum. And it's delicious. Yeah. It's really, it's fresh and it's crisp, but it's got some really lovely floral notes from the Viognier, but a lovely lemon pith bitter almond character from the Marsan. And they just do a really nice job of Viognier sometimes can be quite a big wine when you're drinking it, but they have really reined that in and balanced it nicely. And I think also growing Viognier in a, a sort of an alpine climate where it is cooler, it helps keep that in check. They're a really good example, I think, of producing wine that is super drinkable, but really has a good understanding of where those great varieties came from originally. And I was chatting with one of the guys from El Dorado Road when I was at the cellar door, and he was saying that it's really important not to overshadow those wines with just pure fruitiness, but making sure that it's really clear the grape variety and bringing out some of those savory characters that the grape variety offers. So there's a number of producers doing some wonderful things with alternative varieties in Beechworth. It's about a three, three and a half hour drive from Melbourne. So I would recommend people go and spend some time experiencing the wines up there. It sounds and actually, awesome. 
I just have to say quickly, because my mind is flowing now with all these wonderful <laughs> wine producers up there. The King Valley is nearby to Beechworth, and there are some great producers there with strong Italian heritage producing great wines. But there's also a producer called Billy Button Wines, and Joe Marsh is the winemaker, and she makes the most extraordinary wines from, oh, at least eight or nine, if not more, different alternative varieties. And they're wonderful. From Pinot Blanc to Tempranillo, all sorts of different varieties. She's a very talented winemaker and she has two cellar doors in the region and it's very, very popular. So again, if you're up in the Alpine region, I think it's worth visiting there. And if you're not, it's worth doing a bit of research online to see how you can get your hands on a bottle or two of Joe's wines. Do you feel like maybe this is the reckoning that Australia needs to kind of juice it back up. It, it feels like for a while, the mature market has gone on. It seems like the styles have changed and Australia needs a little injection of this exciting stuff. And of course, you know, I speak from the U.S. perspective where we just see a lot of bulk wine and we would like to see more stuff. I think people are really interested in Australia and what else is there. So I've been here for around 16 years and the industry is just super exciting. It's really dynamic. There's a lot of innovation, but a lot of that happens on quite a small scale, which means that what is exported and what is available internationally doesn't always reflect what's happening in the country itself, which I think is true of any wine producing nation. But if I look at well-known wine industry professionals who perhaps have come into Australia, lived here and worked maybe in the restaurant scene as sommeliers and so forth, their response to how diverse, the surprise to how diverse and how good quality the wine is here is a really good indication of how it's not necessarily always seen in the international market. So I think there is that. I also think that industry bodies are starting to work quite hard to support that as the portion of vines representing those alternative varieties are there. But it's a, it's a slow burn. I think it will become part of the Australian Venus landscape, if you like. Right. I, I think it's intending to overtake the traditional varieties, which I think there are some wonderful examples from those classic grape varieties that are available both in Australia, but also on the export market. So I just think it's adding another layer. And as I mentioned before, I think that story about producers' history and the reason for production, that's a really important part of why people buy wine, or at least why some people choose to buy wine. Right. And I think shows like yours, what's important is that you get the message out there. And now that people are aware that there is more than credit wines to Australia, there are avenues to go and find them. And I jumped online yesterday just to look at a few of the importers I knew in the US who were yep. bringing in alternative varieties. And there is a great direct-to-customer website that wraps up some wonderful producers. So it's there if you know to go and look for it. That's just part of the journey, isn't it, to talk about it and get the word out there. I do wonder if there'll be, especially in the U.S., and I, I bring up the U.S. market just because it's such a huge market. We've definitely seen a dip in Australian wines. I wonder if the strategy for Wine Australia may be sell in the little amount of unique varietals that we have and then bring the traditional varietals along with them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the, yeah. the Marquis Grange and all that. Nobody's, you know, nobody drinks. There's like 10 bottles of that in the world. But maybe the, the new kind of marketing spin is, look, we've got all this new stuff and then you sell in the traditional stuff afterwards. Who knows? 
getting your own market at home on board with it is hugely important. Of course, Australia relies on the wine market relies on exports to survive, but mm-hmm. it's important to get the buy-in at home before you before you take it international, right? So I think for I, sure, and I think that we're definitely seeing that. And I also think too, in terms of export markets, the European market and the Southeast Asian market are showing some really good progress for the alternative varieties. When I talk to producers about where they're available and why they're not in the US, the paperwork to get into the US is a significant trade barrier for smaller producers. So I think that that plays an enormous role in shaping the perception of what Australian wine is because it tends to be only larger companies that can actually go through the cost and the time that's required to export their wines into the US. I think the US market is so complicated. That's what I hear time and time again, that a lot of people look elsewhere where it is uh, an easier process to export their wine. So as a result, you do see these alternative varieties in other export markets in greater numbers than you would see in the US market. And I think the bureaucracy has a lot to do with it. Yeah. So I think that's a huge, huge and a whole other can of worms. But we do a lot of (laughs) we do a lot of shows about how the bureaucracy limits people from buying wine because we have basically 50 different countries here and the paperwork in order to do it is really, really difficult. But I think this is just yet another example of how the market in the U.S. has overcomplicated things, our very challenging relationship with wine in particular, honestly, and with alcohol in the U.S. has put us in a really difficult position. And then we as wine lovers actually wind up really suffering for it because of the prohibitions, not to say, you know, not to talk about prohibition, but prohibition, I I mean, it is, uh, it it puts us at a real disadvantage, which really is, is not great. But perhaps when we all go to London, we can enjoy some piano from (laughs) Australia. (laughs) That's, that's the message that I'd like to leave everybody with. Please have a narrow and have a piano and a tempranillo and a blend when you are in London next. That is, that's your best shot if you're not going to Australia to be able to enjoy it since since I think more people go to London than they do Australia because it's a shorter trip. So we'll True. We'll, or Japan or away. South Korea or <laughs> Europe. Yes, I, it, yes or I Canada think so. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, so so that's the message. Well, Simone, I'm so glad to have you back on. Please come again and we'll talk about oh, more of to. your more of your writing. I mean, you're just doing so much great work. We'll link to your pieces you do previous writing and it's just great to have you back and i know the audience is going to go crazy over this because they've missed you you are you are the best (laughs) you are the best all right well Well, thank thank you for having me thank you so much for your time and with that this has been another episode of wine for normal people thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time